abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. Imagine your local grocery store. You know Joe and Penny, the owners, well. You've been buying there for many years and you are fond of the place. The produce is always fresh and plentiful. The place is always clean and tidy and their staff, whenever Joe and Penny are not in, is always helpful and outgoing. Lately, however, you feel that something is quite off and it is hard for you to pinpoint what that thing is. Until one day you realize, more often than not, the things you are after are constantly out of stock. You hear Joe, Penny and their staff saying, Oh, we just sold the last of these items you are after not a minute ago. We are terribly sorry. A fresh order will arrive bright and early tomorrow. But, alas, you miss these items on the following day again. Confused? You eventually ask Penny, what's up? Haven't you noticed, she answers, people moved to the new buildings they built at the end of the high street and our neighborhood has now nearly doubled in volume. Today's episode is all about making food for an ever-growing number of people. I asked Odette Distel, head of Israel Newtech, how many people are there in the world today? So since uh, we are both uh, looking on the website, so we are now 7.6513478122 billion people on this planet. And while you were speaking, 10 more people were born. Yeah, we are, we are quick. Joking aside, uh, it's a serious issue. And by 2050, we're going to be around 10 billion people on this planet. A lot of mouths to feed. Yeah. And uh, one major thing is how do we feed all those mouths on this planet? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, during the 1960s, there were many occasions of severe hunger in the world. Mm-hmm. Today, there's still hunger mostly due to wars and conflicts, but we don't see another Biafra like in the 70s no, or 60s. We, we are doing better, uh, according to all uh, international organizations, the, uh, the UN, the FAO, and on. But it's a big question, how do we do it? So, uh, you know, looking to 2050 and to those uh, 10 billion souls on this planet... We can say, okay, uh, we have to grow more because we have to feed more people. So this is one way to look at it. Uh, for me, not a very good way because we have to do uh, things better. 
not just to grow more, but to grow more efficiently and to use our resources in a better uh, way. So the challenge is to consume better, to use better, to uh, manufacture better, and to adapt to the uh, real needs of uh, mankind and not to uh, all those uh, different uh, obstacles that exist uh, on our way. Effectively, there's no food without water. Yes. No other way around it. But you're talking now about supply chains. You're talking about big companies that manufacture food and drive it to places in the mm-hmm. Western world. In more traditional societies, they might grow their food in their own backyard. Right. Now, this episode is going to talk a bit about how can I make food at home. Does it make any sense that 10 billion people will make food at home, their own food at home? Personally, I think the answer is yes. We're going to see more and more uh, agriculture uh, done very close to the consumers, uh, maybe on the roofs and in the, in the parks, inside the cities. Is it going to supply all of our food needs? I don't think so. We still have to rely on uh, massive agriculture that is done on, uh, on a global scale. I assume that uh, consumers in London would still like to eat uh, fresh pineapples in the middle of the winter, and it has to be supplied from somewhere. So uh, logistics and uh, traveling still uh, going to play a role, and, uh, and market rules play uh, would set the, the, the scores. But we are going to do it in an efficient way, and... I anticipate that sometime in the future you would consume uh, a pineapple in London, but in addition to the price, it would have kind of a score saying, look, you are consuming a product that has some kind of an impact, environmental impact, uh, since it traveled all the way from Thailand to London. So a great way to secure your food is by growing your own. How, I hear you ask? Meet Moti Kohen, the entrepreneur behind Living Green that aims to promote internationally the field of hydroponics and aquaponics for both domestic and commercial use. I visited him at Living Green's Education Center, a system of greenhouses and demonstration rooms full of, well, food. Uh, currently we are at the demonstration greenhouse of Living Green, where we demonstrate different agriculture techniques, mainly hydroponics, aeroponics, and aquaponics. Hydroponics is a method of agriculture where we grow uh, vegetables, herbs, spice, only on water. You can see the plants submerge in the water and absorb all the nutrients and everything they need to grow directly from the water. There are some fertilizer inside the solution here and there is oxygen and uh, air that inject into the water uh, through a, a pump and that's it. This is the only thing that the plants need. What's that? This is lettuce. This is a type of a lettuce that uh, you can grow here easily, very easy. Uh, year round you can grow different vegetables 
here we see two types of uh, letters um, and this method called DWC, deep water culture. In this method we grow the plants directly on water, we inject into the water fertilizer and we inject oxygen through air and then the plants by the roots absorb all the nutrients and whatever they need from the water and from the upper side they, they're getting the sunlight and then they can grow perfectly. Here oh, we can see strawberries. Yes, definitely. You want to taste one? You can take a small one, but still wow, red. Thank you. Mm. Mm. I don't mm. think I've ever had some, you know, usually you get it yeah. after it's, uh, it's been <laughs> in the fridge for some time and hauled yeah. into the supermarket. It's very fresh. Try to taste this one. Okay. Oh, that's bigger. Thank you. Mmm. Sweeter? It has the flavors strawberries used to have when I was yes, a kid. Exactly. <laughs> this is what I wanted to hear. Yeah. So here so we can see. Here? Okay. Here we can see another type of hydroponic system. Mm -hmm. um, the nickname for this system is NFT or nutrient film technique. The idea is that you grow directly inside of pipes, plastic. Uh, it's UPVC, polyethylene pipes. There is different size for the pipe. The idea is that you have pipes in the hole and you have inside the, the pipe water that's running through the pipe. It's the same water all the time. Okay? Inside this water there is, of, of course, fertilizer. And we put inside the holes, we put the plants in, in, a, in a way that only the bottom of the plants, where the roots start to evolve, will touch the water. In this method we can grow on walls because we can attach the pipes to the walls and then we can grow instead of horizontally and not very efficient regard the surface area, here we can use the walls. So this is one of the methods that becoming more and more popular, NFT and growing with pipes, because you can grow on walls. Now uh, here, if there we saw lettuce and a lot of uh, yes. salad material, I see here tomatoes. Yes, there broccoli. is two type of tomatoes, yes. What is the difference you're asking probably? Yeah. Okay, so you see the difference is the size of the pipe. Let's check out the size of the tomatoes here, the size of the roots. I'm taking out now the plants from the pipe Whoa. and showing you the roots. You can <laughs> see the size of the roots. Yeah. Wow. It's like, that's, it's that's massive. That's huge. And because and this of is, that... This is why they're, they're in a basket that is full of... What is it? This is hydro... It's like tooth, like gravel, volcanic gravel. Mm -hmm. It's the same, the same material. And it's, it's inert. It does not affect the plants. The idea of hydroponics basically is that you can grow, as I said before, you can grow vertically, you can grow directly on water, you don't need any soil. We're using only 20% of the water because it's a closed system. You see, we have the tank here and we have the pump. But as you can see, it's the same water running all the time. It's a closed loop system. In hydroponics, from seedling to fully grown plants, one lettuce will 
uptake between 2 liters to 4 liters of water during the whole period of time, around 1 month, 4 weeks of growth. So it will take around 2 to 4 liters, that's it. And when I grow it, you know, in the... Regular, it could be up to 3 times more. You can hear the sound and this is a bigger pump, I assume, and this is something quite unusual to see in a greenhouse. Whitefish? Carps? What are these? No, definitely not carps. Don't, uh, don't assault them. <laughs> uh, we got so here <laughs> big, nice tilapia fish. Oh! Fresh water, yeah. Okay. Fresh water. Tilapia fish, ready to eat as you can see, but we are not letting anyone to take them out anymore. What we have here is an aquaponic system. Aquaponic system, it's a combined fish grow and plants grow uh, all together. We have the fish pond, the water from the fish pond that are enriched with the fish poo basically, that it's fertilizer, it's a great organic fertilizer. Mm -hmm. We're pumping the, this water into the hydroponic system that we have here. The plants in the hydroponics uh, uh, pot and the hydroponics uh, growing beds that you see here are absorbing all the nutrients from the water from the fish pond, cleaning the water, and then the water coming back to the fish tank after they've been purified by the plants. So the fish supporting the plants by giving them fertilizer and the plants supporting the fish by cleaning for the water for them. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be honest now because I did try something from one of those rafts yes. over here and you're telling me that water this green I had was yes. from this tank? Definitely. Am I, will I survive? You will survive. What do you think? Where do you think all the food came from? This is a very safe system. Um, but, but, but you're saying that you use the, the plants that we're supposed to consume afterwards to purify the water. Yes, yes. We, so when I'm saying purified, uh, the water are not toxic. Basically, the fish waste is only built up from NPK, exactly like every fertilizer. NPK? NPK. Uh, nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. This is the building blocks of every uh, fertilizer that we will use. Exactly like the one that we use in compost or the one that, you know, all the farms and all the fields in the world are uh, uh, using. So it's the same material. Here, the only thing that uh, we are doing here, we, we're using the same fertilizer for the plants. And at the same time, the plants, when they're absorbing this fertilizer, they're cleaning the water for the fish. So it's the same process that ha that's been happening in fields and in nature all over the world, but now it's a bit more accurate and a bit more controlled. Now, if, if I'll ask you, you know, if, if I'm a conventional farmer, yes. I will have the ability to play with the amounts of the nitrogen, of the phosphorus, of the potassium, here it seems to me that you get whatever you can. So uh, doesn't it affect no, we, the, the, the plants? Uh, if, you, if you are like a home grower in this method, so yes, you will not start to uh, invest too much efforts in, in uh, changing the different NPK ratios. But if you are a commercial one, there is many simple ways to do that because you can add to the water different type of food, 
to the fish and then you can change the different NPKs that the plants will get. You can add different materials, organic materials or different salts that will play the same way that every conventional farmer is doing. So you can do that in this system too. You can see how the plants grow in here perfectly and even there is some citrus tree. You got aloe vera that is flowering now, look. And um, pineapple here. You and have pineapple here? Yeah, but it's still small. You know, pineapple need around two years to grow, one year and a half. Mm -hmm. So it's only at the beginning of it. What's that? Ow. Be careful. Yeah. Huh? What's that? Which one? Ah. Oh, be careful. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> this is pineapple. pineapple. Yeah, they, they. Yeah, you should be careful from yeah. the pineapple. Who knew pineapples can be so vicious? After the visit to the greenhouse, we went into Moti's office and sat down for a conversation. Hydroponics and soilless culture as a whole received a boost in methods and techniques from quite an incidental source. It's mainly because of the cannabis industry. Because the cannabis industry, a lot of people uh, developed small-scale hydroponic systems. Those cannabis growers develop a lot of different fertilizers, methods, systems in order to grow more efficient. And after a while, the methods and the ideas start to trickle into the vegetables and herbs and leafy greens and decorative industry and growers and gardeners. And nowadays you can see more and more people using the same methods, but to grow tomatoes instead of just cannabis. After all the industry were already existed, it was much easier and cheaper, much, much, much cheaper to get into the vegetables and leafy greens and regular agriculture industry. And this is why you can see the blossom in this area today. Not just that, there is a significant reason. Urbanization. People are living inside cities. We all know and talking about uh, 2015 numbers, uh, what is going to happen, uh, and the food crisis and the water crisis, and, and about mega cities and everything related to food crisis inside the cities. I don't want to start, I, I'm sure that other people talked about it, but what I want to say is that it's true. Much more people living inside cities. There, there are much more people that want much more food and better food and premium food and for that you need better systems that you can grow inside the cities for the cities. So if I'll ask you now what is let's say a utopian building in a city okay. how would you describe it? Um, what's on the what's in the basement? Wow, what's on the first great. floor? What, is, what's on is, the roof? This is great great question. So if we're talking about buildings that people live in it, uh, so on the rooftop, first of all, I would do a hydroponic system to grow food and vegetables for the people that live inside the, the building. Just a garden, easy to use, nothing obligatory for the people that live in there, but giving them the opportunity to grow their own food or part of the basket, that part of the basket that they're buying in the in the supermarket. How sustainable is it though? For a family of five, let's say 10 or 15 families of five to live off one roof. In one of the research that we've done, we found out that if a person 
growing is on leafy greens and herbs. Let's say, let's put aside the vegetables or the majority of the vegetables. In two square meters, you can grow significant amount of the production that you will need. Four. Four to get the daily amount of vitamins that you need in order to live properly. So basically in this research, we took the amount of vitamins and minerals and I'm taking the amount of leafy green and vegetables and herbs that you can grow in two square meters. This is the exact amount that you can produce in order to have a sufficient amount and healthy life in these two square meters. For one person? For one person. Yes. So a family so of five, they need a room. They need that. around 10 meters. So it's a garden. It's not a big garden. Think about it. Now, if you go in vertically... For a, duration, for a duration of a year, for a duration... No, no, no. This is daily, like daily use. That you will come to this 10 meters. Now you imagine 10 meters. It's huge. But remember what we saw before when we start to grow vertically and where we start to grow with levels. So the 10 meters can become two meters if you have five levels or if you're growing on the walls so it's not that big and two meters it's even the higher number so so if it's one meter and a half it can be enough already you're talking with me about meters and heights and levels i'm talking about how much lettuce i okay. can produce a year okay so from one meter you can grow 30 heads of around 200 300 grams per month so, so you can get a, a head of lettuce, if, if you plant it correctly, you can get day. a head of lettuce every, every day. day. So I can grow faster rate, two times, three times the rate that I would grow in conventional agriculture. I'm using only 20% of the water. And I'm using only 20%, sometimes 50%, it depends. I'm very cautious with, my, with the numbers now. Then I would use in conventional agriculture. Wheat, rice, maize? Uh, probably none of them. You can grow all mentioned, but it does not make a lot of sense to grow them because it's sometimes long period of time to grow them. I can minimize the time, but did you saw a rice field? You need a lot of area. You need a huge surface area to grow that. But it um, would make more sense water-wise, no? Uh, it might. And it, you can it grow might. it vertically, no? I mean, you can grow it vertically. Even in Japan, there is a high-tech company that enter to the, inside the buildings. They grow in rice just for fun. Again, not, uh, they are not really producing anything. But again, you need huge amount of water. Rice need the flooding methods. And you need a lot of human resources. So until it makes more sense to do it in more precise agriculture, indoor farming, hydroponics, greenhouses, it will stay outdoor in regular terrace uh, culture uh, in flooding fields. So anyone can be a farmer or there's these no days, such a thing like a farmer anymore? These or? days everyone can be a farmer. I'm talking about potatoes, I'm talking about carrots. First of all, the hydroponics, aquaponics, solid culture, it's not a magic and it's not going to solve all the world's problem in a second. Many people think that it's going to, but it's not. It's just another tool, a very significant, very strong tool in the toolbox of the 
modern farmer in the future of agriculture. That's it. So at least not in the upcoming 20, 30 years. It will not change the way that we producing potato, for example, or carrots. It does not make any sense to move to soilless culture in this kind of growth. But for tomato, for example, lettuce, basil, all the leafy greens, all the herbs, all the vegetables. Even broccoli. Even broccoli, like you saw before. It makes a lot of sense. So it's a great and significant tool, uh, but it's not going to change dramatically the way that we are manufacturing and producing the majority of crops. How do you envisage farming in the 10, 15, 50 years from now? Let's talk about 2050, 9.7 billion people to feed. I had this question in mind for many years. Um, now when I'm even selling systems and designing systems, it's all the time in my mind. Because in one hand you have all the movement to automation. There is huge farms in Japan, in the state, in some place in Europe that moving all the production to automation. Most of them are not profitable yet, but because the costs and the ROI, the return of investments of these farms, it's enormous. It's like 20 years maybe. It does not make any sense because uh, human resources still make more sense to use. I think that the utopian farmer will use more environmental friendly materials. He will not use any chemical pesticide. He will use much more organic manners and more sustainable agriculture, definitely. But on the other hand, he will use technology. He will use different apps to know what's going on with the weather. He will use different apps and application uh, to run the farms. He will use different automation and machinery in order to, to grow in more efficient and more healthy way. But as I see it, there should be a balance between the two things. And I think this is the biggest uh, challenge that I have in Living Green, to find what is the right way in one hand to keep the agriculture in human hands and in the other hand to use the technology and to grow in organic and uh, more environmental and sustainable uh, manners. On top of that, the utopian farming, not farmer now, is to clear area in order to grow all the things that you cannot do on soilless culture and in uh, advanced methods like growing trees, like growing potatoes, like growing all the roots, uh, vegetables, you will grow in regular and conventional farming. But on the other hand, you will have the utopian farmers that we just spoke about, the ones that grow in soilless culture in one hand, and on the other hand, still use only organic pesticide and sustainable methods and using advanced technology in order to produce high premium and healthy food. But, you know, I listen to you and it's great and it's great fun and it looks beautiful and, you know, it really connects you back with, with nature. Uh, and again, the taste is great, <laughs> but it sounds to me like a solution for the developed world, you know, people very affluent 
how good a solution is it yeah. for the developing world or for you know to be able to feed okay nine point so seven billion people don't forget that I'm coming from the humanitarian projects related to hydroponics and aquaponics so it's a sensitive uh, issue for me you can find in solid culture almost a solution for any country or climate one of my uh, technicians that just came back from Fiji uh, last week from amazing projects there is Israeli guy there that bringing Israeli technology water technology to Fiji and he invite us to design a system for the islands in Fiji's uh, because there is no again there is no soil it's very rocky islands so we've been invited there to design a system a solace culture and hydroponic systems that you He will be able to use in those conditions it's a developing country that they need to use these methods in order to grow food in abandoned and arid areas after the break we will go back to the greenhouse to see one of living greens products the one motikohen alluded to in his last answer wish to learn more about Israeli technologies and the Israeli water sector, the people of Israel Newtech will be glad to answer your questions. Log on to IsraelNewtech.com and don't forget to follow Waterline on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at IdanC79. And now, back to the episode. We are back at Living Green's Education and Demonstration Facility in Israel. Outside the main greenhouse stands a thing the size of a very small garden shed. So, here we can see a living box oh, wow. system. The idea of living box, it's a small system, it's a small unit of hydroponic system that comes all together with the small greenhouse. There is a solar panel to pump the water and everything you need to start grow your own vegetables in your backyard. The idea of this system I got it when I was working for the uh, UN for the United Nations, the Food and Agriculture Organization uh, of the UN in Africa. Uh, we had different uh, tasks and one of the tasks was to go to different villages and to try solve the food production in these villages mainly in the household level so we started to design different systems that uh, enable people to grow with small amount of water with a small amount of resources in general and when we were doing that uh, I came across the idea of designing a small kit that will be able to get into a box and that we can ship all over the world that anyone can just grow Open the box, build a small, small greenhouse, add water, and that's it. You, they will have everything inside, the fertilizer, the pump with solar panel. Of course, you need sun, and you can start grow easily uh, with this system. What about the water that you can use in it? 
you can use any water it's better drinkable water or water with low low amount of uh, nitrogen from rivers for example uh, not polluted water because you will get it in your food at the end of the day so you need a drinkable water but again you're using only 20% of the water that you would use in conventional uh, agriculture and of course you can grow let's say up to two times or three times faster than in regular agriculture back in Moticon's office I asked him where did his inspiration come from and to be honest the following story encompasses in it a whole lot when I was in uh, my college time uh, in Mimoret Israel in the, the marine biology college there was a, a conflict an armed conflict in Gaza and uh, I'm a paratrooper and I was called for the reserve in Gaza and uh, when I came back after 30 or 40 days I cannot remember uh, all the seminars the final seminars you know the work that you need to do before you finish your uh, degree all the different subjects were taken by other students so the Dean told me okay choose whatever you want so I thought about it a day or two and then I saw I don't know how I came up to the idea of growing fish together with vegetable I think a friend told me that there is this subject that uh, it might be it start is a rising subject in the world of agriculture you should check it so I started to do different experiment and then I said okay this is great this is what I wanted to do when I've done the seminar I knew that this is what I'm going to do in my life three years later karma called and uh, I had a project, very interesting project for the United Nations in Gaza uh, in order to build 60 different units on a rooftop for, uh, for women. It was an empowering women uh, project uh, that was supported by the UN. And we sent through uh, Ares Gate 60 systems. And after that, there were another project, more commercial-wise, Uh, projects inside Gaza until today we have different projects that we are supporting there uh, mainly knowledge uh, mainly um, we we sharing our knowledge and um, different uh, ideas in order to support the farmers there you said it's karma calling what was the feeling three years afterwards when you started working definitely happiness I was definitely happy prefer to send letters instead of guns uh, on or whatever uh, to Gaza uh, make letters not war that was uh, one of the centers that I said uh, uh, after the project there uh, and I can see how agriculture can be a bridge between people We c- I can see how uh, working in this field can be a bridge between people because it's creating something it's food it's life. And of course, it's water. Are you on a mission? Wow. Um, am I on a mission? Uh, I don't think that I wake up at the morning and, and thinking about that I'm, I'm on a mission to accomplish the one specific thing. We do have a big vision here. And I think I, I spoke about the vision, uh, about the utopian farmer, about uh, introducing this method to the private sector, to schools that it's very important for us, to, to different companies. But 
when I uh, doing a, a project, for example, for the UN or for a different government, it's a mission. Uh, you feel like you are in a mission. You've got a certain time to accomplish the mission. You've got a certain uh, challenges that you need to solve. So yeah, in, in those times, I definitely feel that I'm in a mission. In regular times, uh, I think that the, the big vision is like around us and surrounding us all the time. You know what? We are in a mission. Yes. When you, when, when I, after answering, I understand that, yes, we are in a mission. Living Greens R&D is rooted in a wider Israeli agricultural ethos. Ask any Israeli and he or she will tell you about an important Israeli institute, the Volcani Center. It is Israel's R&D institute that looks into any aspect of agriculture. The Agricultural Research Organization of the Volcani Center is made up of six institutes, plant sciences, animal science, plant protection, soil, water, and environmental sciences, agricultural engineering, and post-harvest and food sciences. Part of the Israeli Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development, the Volcani Center was established way before the State of Israel was established. It all began when one person said yes. The man was Yitzhak Vilkansky, who later changed his name to Volkani. Daniel Abraham, Executive Director at Volkani International Partnerships, came to our studio and we began our conversation with a short course in history. The year was 1907. It was the second wave of Aliyah, the immigration into the land of Israel, Palestine. And the settlers were really struggling, you know, to develop the land and do agriculture. And one of the leaders of the movement at that time wrote a letter in Hebrew, which we have a copy of today, to someone called Mr. Yitzhak Elazar Vilkansky. And he sent it to him in Germany. And he was a big agronomist. And the letter, basically, they said to him, would you be willing to make Aliyah and to come and help us develop the agriculture? And he left Germany and he moved here. And he started doing uh, agricultural development. He joined what was then the Ben Shemin farm in 1908. And he started doing research in agriculture and started training. And he was the one that came with this big vision about how to develop agriculture in Israel. What does it mean? It means that he looked at the efforts of the pioneers and he realized that really it was quite miraculous what they were trying to do. However, it would never be enough. And really to obtain this huge agricultural transformation, you really needed a dedicated agricultural R&D component. You needed dedicated research and dedicated development. And more than that, he also noted, he took the examples from the uh, Templars at Serona. They were very uh, visionary and they'd started modern practices of agriculture, which basically said it shouldn't be down to the farmer to do the innovation and R&D. The farmer should be busy, you know, growing his crops and things in the fields. It should be upon the scientist to do the innovation and the research in the labs and disseminate the innovations and solutions to the farmers. And that was the model he was trying to promote and adopt. So his big vision was to establish a dedicated R&D for agriculture and with experimental stations. But the most important thing was the interaction with the farmers. He wasn't to build, you know, more ivory towers of academics that would sit there in the labs and never go out to the field and interact with the farmers. They were meant to work hand-in-hand hand with the farmers to create the solutions. So that was his vision back in 1908, which is crazy when you come to think of it. 
And his vision came true in 1921. And they set up an agricultural experimental station. And that slowly became the Volcani Center today. In 1948, the State of Israel was formally established. And they took the experimental station and institutionalized it. And it became part of the Ministry of Agriculture. And so today, the Volcani Center is the official arm of the State of Israel, the R&D agricultural arm of the State of Israel, and sits under the Ministry of Agriculture. And what is R&D when it comes to agriculture? Because I can think about, when we talk about startups, the, the biggest part of a startup is the, the R&D arm. And when you're talking about R&D and agriculture, you are trying to redesign a tomato? It can be, yes. Okay. I actually like to think of agriculture, especially in the state of Israel, as one huge startup, against all odds, because agriculture at the beginning really didn't exist here. The land was completely barren. And it's not a sensible place to do agriculture. But it's not completely true. I mean, people lived in this land for thousands of years. They did. Mm-hmm. However, if to do agriculture, you need four basic things. Let's say, to develop an agricultural industry, first you need fertile lands. The land of Israel is not very fertile. Uh, number two, you need uh, water, fresh water supply. I mean, we're always in a chronic water shortage here. Number three, you need human resources that actually know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. and how to do agriculture. And four, if you want to have a good agricultural industry, you really need export markets that are quite close by. And I mean, we're situated in a pretty difficult neighborhood, so export markets has always been a challenge. So just establishing an agricultural industry, both for food security nationally, but also to be able to export goods internationally, was not a small task. So in a bit like the startup mindset, they had to engage in R&D, research and development, in order to create innovations to overcome all of these challenges. What the R&D was designed to do was to really address the challenge of the individual farmer. How to make the farmer succeed. If they're growing tomatoes and the tomatoes are being affected by a certain pest, the farmer would take the pest and the tomato to the researchers. It was really breaking down the barriers between the field and the labs. And he'd show the researchers, look at what's happening to my tomato plant. What is the problem? Can you help me? And the researchers would do the R&D on that specific problem. The land of Israel is situated in an area called the Fertile Crescent. It was really the birthplace of agriculture. Israel has a very, very high number of um, indigenous plants to the area today. It kind of collides with R&D, no? Because if you can sustain certain species in the land of Israel already, why R&D? Exactly. You hit the point exactly on the head. So today, a lot of the world is talking about climate change, the threat of climate change, and how we can ensure that our agricultural systems will be resilient to climate change. You know, this is a hotter temperatures, less rainfall, difficult soils, new pests. And what we've done in Israel is not only developed special expertise to grow agriculture in conditions of climate change, we actually have, I don't want to say a secret weapon, but a powerful weapon with these indigenous plants because they grew naturally here. They are native to this land, which means they inherently have special qualities which enable them to grow in such harsh conditions. Now, if you took those indigenous species and try to create commercial varieties straight away out of them, it wouldn't work. But what you can do is breed them with commercial varieties with the idea of creating a commercial variety that could be grown by a farmer and sold, but it would also have those special qualities which would enable it to be climate change resistant. Such as? For example, almonds. In Volcani's northern research station in Neveyar, they have a huge collection of wild species of almonds, which are naturally adapted to the harsh conditions. So we're talking about almonds that maybe King David and, uh, and <laughs> Abraham ate? 
It sounds like a nice idea, possibly. Mm-hmm. But they have special qualities that enable them to be grown in harsh conditions. So they have a huge bro- breeding program up there in Neveya, which enables them to create these almond cultivars that are commercially viable, but have inherent uh, qualities in them that will enable them to resist harsher conditions. So the Californian market is... Uh... The California market is very hot on the almonds. They have visited numerous occasions, as are other places, for example, Australia, especially as the world starts to heat up and things like that. There are six institutes which really cover the whole spectrum of agricultural science, you know, from plant breeding through to the soil and water, through to plant protection, through to animal sciences, agricultural engineering, post-harvest. And one of the secrets of Israel's agricultural success was really this multidisciplinary expertise. Because if the farmer comes into the labs one day with a challenge that he's facing in the field, it's very rare that you can address that challenge properly unless you bring all the experts together. So today at Volcani in the management building, there's a very big conference room with a big table. And there is usually the place where the top experts from all the different fields come together to tackle one challenge. We have a lot of delegations from all around the world. And one of their biggest questions that they always come with is how did you do it? How did Israel overcome these immense challenges and create a kind of miraculous agricultural transformation here in the land? How did you do it? You created this new cadre of agricultural scientists that are willing to roll up their sleeves. How do you get them to interact with the farmers? How do you get your farmers to adopt the innovations that are being produced in the lab? Now, this is an interesting question, and it came from an Indian delegation where they have some strong agricultural R&D. They have a lot of farmers and also a lot of challenges, like any country. They said, our biggest challenge is technology adaptation. The farmers are very resistant and reluctant to adopt the new innovations and technologies. And the Israeli response is, how do we stop our farmers adopting the technology? Because what happens in Israel with the R&D, a bit like a startup, they, it might start in the lab, but very quickly it goes out and it's in field trials in farmers' fields. And so the farmers are trying to see what their neighbor is doing. They see it succeeds, and they want to roll out the technology before it's even ready. And the scientists would say, you know, let's wait until it's proven properly. So the Israelis are very um, eager <laughs> to get going. And that interaction is not very easy to replicate. And other countries in around the world say, you know, well, how did you do it? How are your scientists willing to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty? Otherwise, they won't work at Vulcani? <laughs> If they won't do it? No, I'm not kidding. That's a question. Yeah, I guess it doesn't suit them. It's very applied. It's all about problem solving. This is from Mr. Vilkansky in 1918. He wrote, The quest for wisdom and science is, of course, worthy in and of itself. But with various tools, it is possible to serve them to the thirsty. All that comes out of the laboratories and experimental fields do not find their full and complete worthiness unless they are realized in actual households. On the worker of the land is laid the most valuable function of using the conquest of science and technology. So that was from Mr. Vilkansky in 1918. And already then he had the foresight and vision to understand the importance of the connection between the lab and the field. And he quite explicitly said, you know, if the findings of the lab are not implemented in the hands of the farmers in the field, it's almost worthless. Water? Yes, water is an interesting subject. Because I'm thinking about, you said, uh, six different institutes. Yes. No matter where I will walk around those institutes, water plays a key role. Yes. Be it, you know, in livestock, be it in fish, be it in, I don't know, the basics of growing wheat. But mm-hmm. even when it comes to just treating the soil and making sure that you don't have any runoff of pollutants into groundwater or bodies of water. 
So one of Volcani's six institutes is the Institute of Soil and Water Science. And as we said before, Israel does not have a copious amount of freshwater sources available. So for Volcani and Israel itself to become a leader in agriculture, but also to be a world leader now in the water use for agriculture, is also one of the uh, small miracles of the state of Israel. And it didn't come about by chance, it came about by dedicated R&D, investments into two key innovations in the water space. One is increasing water use efficiency, which is basically, you know, how much can you get per drop? What's the biggest yield growth, whatever you can get, by one drop of water? And the second area is using different sources of water. So for today in Israel, it's not just agriculture with fresh water sources, which we're very short on. You have three other sources of water. The first is recycled wastewater, effluent. The second is saline water, brackish water. And the third is desalinated water, which has started more recently. Now, it might sound quite logical. Oh, great, we've discovered these new sources of water. We'll just take them and we'll start using them for agriculture. But nothing is ever that simple. And I can give the example just of desalinated water, if you like. We often think of desalinated water after it's passed through the process as the purest of pure water that we can have. It sounds like it would be perfect for agriculture. It's actually not the case because for our, the plants don't need the purest water. They really need water that has calcium and magnesium in which they need for plant growth. Just like ourselves. Just like ourselves. So in order to use these different sources of water, be it desalinated water, brackish water, and effluent water, there was a lot of R&D that had to go into it to understand how to use it, when to use it, what do we need to add back into the water to, in order to make the crops grow well. So when they built the desalination plants in Israel, people from Volcani came along to work with them? The role of the agricultural scientist is also to be a bit of a visionary and to look into the future about and predict, you know, potential needs, where our next challenge is going to come from and how can we can prepare. Because R&D processes are not short necessarily. Sometimes mm -hmm. they take quite a few years from starting with an idea in the lab until it's commercialized out on the other side. So in terms of the desalination, I'm not sure exactly when they started, but it's very much the case that as uh, the potential for desalination arose, And the idea that it could be used as another source of water for agriculture, the R&D there was in place to understand, can we use desalinated water for agriculture? If we can, what's needed? Do we need to add elements back into the desalinated water? What would be the effect on the environment? What would be the effect on the plants? Which kind of plants work better with desalinated water? Which ones don't? The first innovation with regards to water is really about how can we increase water use efficiency? which is all about how much added yield we can get for the same cubic unit of water. And today, if you look around, Israel is a world leader in water use efficiency for agriculture, which is pretty impressive. And I think if we're looking at how they've done it, I think there's two main things. I think one is introducing certain protocols, management protocols, which is all about when to irrigate, how to irrigate, how much to irrigate. They also look at how to minimize water loss. You look at the evaporation rate, you can put nets above certain crops, which helps reduce water loss. That's all the different protocols. How did they end up devising this protocol or these protocols? So these protocols, I think by the time they reach the hands of the farmer, look pretty simple. You might have instructions that says this crop needs to be irrigated this many times a day at this time and this much and things like that. However, the process to come to those uh, protocol conclusions or instructions is not as simple. Obviously, there's a lengthy R&D process which happens, whereby the researchers probably take a certain crop, one crop at a time, and look at the different effects of different irrigation regimes on the crop. 
And through the field experiments, they would see the impacts of different irrigation regimes. And the idea is to optimize the irrigation regime and the management protocols to create the highest yield with the least amount of water. Taking into account the fact that we're talking about something natural yes. and that nature takes its own course and nature needs time, one can assume that such research would take maybe yes. five, ten years till they get to the conclusion? So I think one of the secrets of Israeli agriculture success is that the innovation process and the R&D is continuous and ongoing. I don't know if it's something to do with the Israeli characteristics of never being satisfied, but there's a constant... Or impatient. Or impatient, both <laughs> together. There's a constant push to find something better and better. There's never a sense of, oh, we did this for five years. We found the protocol. Let's leave it. It's always the question, okay, what's next? How can we improve? And I think that drive is one of the key ingredients which has enabled Israel to emerge as a leader of water use efficiency for agriculture. Okay, so we talked about protocols. We talked about protocols. The other thing is technology, and specifically using um, precision irrigation, or precision agriculture, as they call it. Now, precision agriculture is all about delivering to the plant exactly what it needs and when it needs. Now, the question is, how do you do that? Now, firstly, you need to understand what the plant needs. And you can do that through a whole range of different technological innovations from the sensors. So we have sensors that sit sometimes on the branch or the trunk of a tree or a plant. And it's almost like a Dr. Doolittle sensor. It speaks to the plant itself. It basically says to the plant, you know, how much food do you need? How much water do you need? And by using that sensor, you can really understand what the needs are of that specific plant. Other technology, in order to understand what the crops need, they're using um, drones flying above the fields with thermal cameras, infrared thermal cameras. And according to the pictures that they receive back from the drone, they can understand which parts of the field are under water stress, in which case they need more water, and which ones need more water. So in order to do precision agriculture, first you have to understand what the crop needs. Now, the second innovation in terms of the technology for that is the delivery mechanism. How are we going to deliver exactly what that crop needs to exactly where it needs? And that's where you come into technologies such as drip irrigation, subsurface drip irrigation, and things like that. Aren't we losing something, or am I being too romantic to think that now a farmer shouldn't have a track record of 20, 30, 40 years working the same plot, and now everything a computer can do for him? So I don't think we can go that far and say everything a computer can do for him. And I do think there is something to be said for experience. And I think there is this romantic notion of the farmer. However, at the same time, the romantic notions of the farmer was often, you know, my crops failed and now I don't have any income. So to be able to offer another level of security to a farmer really out there doing agriculture, I think is hugely beneficial. You also touched on a point, which is, you know, where data science comes in today. And a lot of the resistance to uh, taking decisions based on data is, you know, I, I have a lot of experience in the field. I uh, have a gut feeling this is what we should do. And I think if you look at the emerging world of data science and the effect it has on all areas of policy and decision making, whether it's in baseball mm -hmm. um, or it's really inside the government, I think it's just extending out to agriculture now. And I hope that it will just be for the best. The solutions you're talking about sounds like solutions for the developed world. Mm -hmm not for a developing country. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, Israel today is part of the developed world, and a lot of the cutting-edge agricultural innovations, especially coming out of the Agricultural Engineering Institute, you know, flying drones in the sky, might not be appropriate for, let's say, a smallholder farm in Africa. However, the Volcani Institute still has an immense amount of knowledge 
and experience to offer to developing countries. And more than that, I think one of the secrets that Israel had to creating this agricultural transformation and tackling the challenges facing the farmers was this unique ability to do agricultural R&D and come up with new solutions. And one of the things we're looking at today is to put that service in the hands of the African smallholder farmer. We are now in the process of launching the Israel Africa Agricultural Innovation Center. And the whole idea behind it is to see how Israel's unique capacity to do agricultural R&D, together with its vast experience um, and knowledge in the field, can actually solve challenges facing African smallholder farmers. 2050 is the year that we are supposed to be, we as humanity, 9.7 billion people on our tiny, tiny, tiny earth. Mm-hmm. How will we be able to feed 9.7 billion mouths? It's a good question, and it depends where you want to focus. I think there's a lot of answers, and there's a lot of challenges on the way. I think one issue that we haven't touched upon yet is really is the issue of post-harvest loss and losses across, across the value chain. I mean, I really think one of the biggest challenges facing agriculture and the food industry as a whole around the world is this issue of loss. I mean, I think the statistic is roughly one-third of the global food produced is lost. One-third of all food produced around the world is lost. So all, already today we're inefficient. Yeah, we are very inefficient. And perhaps the amount of food that we're producing today is enough to feed those nine billion mouths. It's just an issue of can we address the post-harvest challenge. Now, it's a very interesting split. I think if you look at the developed world, most of the losses occur on the retail and the consumer end. However, if you look more at the developing world, the losses are more in the field and in the processing stage. However, in terms of actual quantity, I think the losses are pretty similar. So, for example, in developing countries, it's about approximately 40% of the losses occur at post-harvest or processing levels. However, in industrialized countries or a country like Israel, more of 40% of the losses happen at the retail and the consumer levels. You know the idea. So you go many- to the supermarket... You buy some food, you're like, yes, I'm definitely going to make that dinner on Tuesday. You get busy, you get tired, you don't get around to it. And you find yourself at the end of the week throwing away some moldy vegetables from the back of the fridge. So let's break it down into a concrete example. Let's take a cassava farmer in Nigeria. Cassava is a, a root vegetable, a bit like a sweet potato, a staple food crop in Nigeria. Cassava is critical for food security across Africa. It's the main source of nutrition for approximately half of the continent's population. That's more than 500 million people. However, one of its big challenges is it has a very short shelf life. So, you know, the farmers are growing cassava, they harvest it, and within 24 to 72 hours after harvest, it's ruined. Now, if you don't have the right market linkages and the processing facilities right there on site, it's very difficult and it leads to huge wastes and losses. Now, why did we choose Nigeria? Other than the fact that we have strong partners in Nigeria, is that Nigeria is the world's largest cassava producer and they have approximately 30 million smallholder farmers growing cassava today. So just think about the impact. If we are able to extend the shelf life of cassava, let's just say to three months, the impact on that crop and the value chain could be absolutely immense. So the idea is really to bring together Volcani's capacity and experience in agricultural R&D with the Post Harvest Institute together with scientific partners on the ground in Nigeria, with some other organizations that are around, and to see if we can do what we did for the state of Israel, together with partners on the ground, for cassava in Nigeria. The first sentence in the introduction part of a paper written by Danielle Abraham and her colleagues 
about how Israel became a world leader in agriculture and water, reads, Israel is not a natural nor sensible place for agriculture. Yet, in the foreword to the same paper that was published by Vulcani International Partnerships, the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, and the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Blair, writes, Israel has overcome overwhelming challenges such as water scarcity and poor land conditions. Every country is unique and each has to chart its own course, and yet, he continues, certain principles and insights are universal. The lessons one can draw from the way Israel structured itself from the early years are relevant for governments, farmers, markets, and development partners, he concludes. In the year 2050, it is estimated that we will be 9.8 billion people on Earth, and by 2100, 11.2 billion, out of which more than a third in Africa alone. Question is, will we be able to feed so many people? What will happen if we'll resort back to staple foods that were prevalent some three, four, five decades ago? Because then in Israel we have fresh pineapples and we even grow pineapples in Israel now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I grew up in the 80s as a kid, we didn't have that. We only had the canned type, (laughs) which was a treat. I'm trying to think of the fact that if we need to feed 9.7 billion people, maybe we should envisage a different dinner plate? So I think our plates could still look the same. I think um, the issue of whether we have to rely on locally sourced food and have to go back to, you know, what we're producing once upon a time, I don't think that would necessarily be the case. I think, you know, the agricultural innovations today would allow different countries to produce other food there locally. And I think, you know, also with the power of the markets and the export industry and post-harvest innovations allowing that export will still be in place, enabling the movement of food and crops around the world. The question of whether it's going to be sustainable to keep our plates looking the same is another question that we should probably uh, address. You know, should we be eating the same amount of meat? And what's the impact on the environment of meat today? And considering whether we can actually feed the world, you know, when there's going to be 9.7 billion people in 2050, and is this a huge challenge and should we be concerned? I think the answer is yes, we should be concerned. However, I am optimistic, and I'll tell you why. I think um, now coming from Israel and looking at the almost miraculous agricultural transformation that took place here in the state of Israel and looking at the driver of that change, it was agriculture and R&D. The R&D is critical here, and I really do believe in the power of agricultural R&D, not just, you know, the farmers in the field, but using intellectual capacity to create new innovations and disseminate them and put them in the hands of the farmers is what will enable us to feed 9.7 billion people. Waterline was brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.